0: Um, it's, it's been cool to see kind of how the whole, whole Old Testament has really brought us Hopefully to this point that we're going to cover tonight um, Because tonight we're going to cover the cross in the grave Or the cross in the tomb And I think this is that pivotal turning point, right? We, we also learned in the Nativity because the angel said like today The Savior is born to you Like it wasn't no longer a future prophecy It was a present proclamation It was this reality of the Savior was now here right? The baby. Christ didn't grow up to become Christ. He was Christ. He wasn't merely a human baby who became God-man. He was God-man through and through. And so now tonight what we're going to do is we're going to finally depict and hopefully proclaim from the, the scriptures the reality of what was always prophesized about him. What was always given about him, and now we get to see him actually accomplish it. So, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in the main passage is Luke twenty-three. We are going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter twenty-three, um, and I'm going to flip over there myself. Look at that. I did that pretty good. Luke twenty-three, and here here's what I my main prayer for tonight. Um, I, I try to always connect things to the gospel. I hope that every message I preach will, will bring us to the gospel. Um, but I'm excited that tonight is pretty much the reality of what the gospel is. Um, the full depth, just historical account and the real account of it. Um, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. But I wanted, uh, how many of you, if I say, if I say the two criminals on the cross, how many of us know where we're at in scripture? Um, For us who don't, Jesus, when he was being crucified, he was hung in between two criminals. And and they were rightfully there. That was the Roman way of execution. And uh, we actually, I'm going to talk about this a little later, but to give you context for this, those two thieves, they were, right, the the Greek word in there is a a thief. But in the Greek, they had two words for thieves. They had a thief that was like a petty crime. Like they just kind of like kicked the door open and stole like your bike lock type thing. And then you had like, the, the thieves who come in and hold you at gunpoint and probably shot somebody. There was the two different realities of thieves and these were the guys who had done harm to people in the midst of stealing. That's why they were being executed. It wasn't just like they stole a you know, corn dog and Romans were just like, you know what? Dead. No, they had physically harmed and attacked and potentially killed somebody to have this punishment taking place. And I want you to hear what John Calvin um, who phenomenal guy on scripture and in church history. Uh, But he said this about uh, about this kind of narrative in Luke 23. He says, what is promised to the robber does not alleviate his present suffering nor make any abatement of his bodily punishment. This reminds us that we ought not to judge the grace of God by the perception of the flesh. See, in our culture today, everyone wants God to be this feel good, all is love, let me do my own thing because God is love type mentality. That is what we live in. We live in a culture that's constantly just saying, no, 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 self-care is best care, right? Just read this self-help book that gives you 20 steps to a better life. And if you don't have a better life, then you're doing something wrong. And what we are going to read about in the opening of this passage with the two criminals on the cross is we see one of them does come to a realization of Jesus. But in that reality, he still gets the full punishment of what he did here on earth. And yet we read the gift that he has given. And so it's this combat against this feel good, just lovey dovey Christianity that people want you to have that has no judgment, has no punishment, has no chastisement. Jesus never really had to die. That's what John Calvin's getting after he's saying, no, no. The grace of God cannot be balanced by how you perceive it in your flesh. It is a truth that does not hinge on how you perceive it. It's a truth that is there because of the word of God. And so I want to give you uh, an actual now an Old Testament passage that's going to point us towards the New Testament because I was always doing it afterwards. We'd read an Old Testament story and point it to somewhere about Christ in the New Testament. But Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. This is a messianic prophecy, and it says he will dispense. Uh, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like some people. Uh, he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. And then we see Peter, right? The one who denied him three times, even though he's like, I'll never deny you. And then he's like, no, you will three times before the rooster crows. So good luck, Peter. And then yet this is what he says after the reality of the resurrection. He says this. He says in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 21, he says... For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep gone astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, and again, if we look back at the criminal on the cross that we're about to dive into, there's this weird notion again of this health, wealth, and prosperity, right? If you have Jesus, then you are blessed. And you are going to have good health because God wants you to be earthly happy. He wants you to have earthly joy. He wants you to have earthly health and I want us to keep that in mind when we read this because they take passages like this where even in first Peter it says um, so that uh, by his wounds you were healed and all of a sudden so okay so if Jesus died then you will no longer have cancer if you died you will no longer be sick and if you are sick it's a lack of faith have more faith in Jesus and you shall not be sick Now that I've primed you for it, let's dive into Luke 23. We're going to start in verse 32. 32 through 34. 32 through 34 says this, Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they uh, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. See, pretty quick we understand the reality of what the, the common people and the common government and the common consensus of Christ was. But we're also given the thoughts of Christ towards those same people in just those few verses. I want you to see this. See, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council had just convicted him, right? They just convicted him and he was now to be executed. But of course, that's where you bring in Pilate and all these things because the Sanhedrin couldn't get him executed, so they had to go through the Roman government. That's why we see the crucifixion. But I love this one. They they thought Jesus to be nothing but a falsehood, a fake leader, a fake savior, a maniac. Some thought he was a good teacher, but still crazy. but they thought of him enough to hang him by thieves who had literally harmed and murdered people. That's where they equated Jesus with. They said, you know what? This guy's a whack job. He's just as good as someone who just did beanie on a house and stole, you know, a TV and killed a cat. Like, that's where we're going to lump Jesus. But what does Jesus do in return to this moment? He has now just been led to his execution. What is Jesus' response? He calls out, forgiveness. And I, and I thought I heard this reality a few years ago about the about the cross and about them actually nailing him to the cross because if we read scripture we understand Jesus is the the giver, the sustainer, the provider of life, of breath, everything that is created is in Him, for Him, and through Him. So these people who were literally hammering His hands and His feet to the cross were only being kept alive because Jesus was providing the means for their life. So the same person they were literally hanging on a cross was the same person providing them the strength to swing the hammer. And what is His response? Father, forgive them because they don't even understand how wicked they truly are being. They don't know what they're doing. They're so blinded by their wickedness and their hate that they don't even understand the one they are nailing to the cross. He says, forgive them. 35 through 38. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him. They came and offered him sour wine. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him, this is the king of the Jews. In other gospel accounts, we read that he actually took the sour wine. But there was one time before it that he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. And he denied it. And why was that? Well, back then, the wine mixed with myrrh was actually a pain relief. It was like, like extreme Tylenol or aspirin. It was, meant to, it was meant to numb him. It was meant to make him less cognitive of what was taking place. But sour wine, as funny as the name would lead it to be, was actually for rehydration. So Jesus was actually making the reality of the cross to the most full extent possible because of the price that sin was. In his humanity, he could have coughed out and took the pain relief. But because he knew what he was sent to do, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He had a mission that he came to do. It was now being fulfilled, and he was not about to taint it by taking some pain relief. Rather, he took the sour wine to make sure that he was cognitive and fully aligned with what was going on that he would experience all that was taking place on our behalf. It's tiny details like this that lend to the authenticity of the account. I mean, think about it. How many of us would be willingly going like, no, 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 don't want the Tylenol. Give me the thing that makes the headache even worse. It's like the mistake I make half the time where I'm like, I know I have a headache because I'm dehydrated, so I make more coffee. And I make the excuse, coffee has water. And then, you know, Jesse yells at me. So it's fine. Um, But it's okay. We all need the water. But I'm choosing something that's extending the pain. Whereas if I just drank the water, it would probably relieve the pain eventually, right? And so Jesus was making sure that he was fully aware of the price that he was now paying for you and I ultimately. Verse 39 then one criminal hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. See, in Mark's gospel, they, he gives us on his perspective, You know it was right before that both thieves were literally mocking, insulting. Both of them were right there. So we can't give this guy, the other thief, too much credit in the beginning. Because it says only one right here. Both of them were at it. But as the time kept going forth, as Jesus took the sour wine and and was hydrated and cognizant and, and saying all these things, everything he said, these two criminals heard. So they were well aware of what was taking place. So that leads us now into verse 40 when the other one has finally made a realization. This is the other criminal to the other criminal. He says, but the other one answered rebuking him, do you even fear God? Since you are un, uh, undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're going back. I mean, uh, because we're getting back what we deserve from the things that we did. But this man has done nothing. Then he said, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And he said to him, "Truly, I tell you today." You will be with me in paradise. The criminal does not say, Remember my good deeds. Remember that my good outweighed my bad. He had none. He was a violent criminal. He had no fruit to show that he even did good. It wasn't, Remember my polite manners while I held the door for people at church. Well, I was there for the serve event when we wrote letters to the old people. I never curse. I've never touched a cigarette. (laughs) Remember those things, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom. I never stuck my gum on the bottom of the desk. Remember those things. No, the criminal doesn't say that either. He, he also doesn't say, remember how much I loved other people. Remember just how loving I was. I was so charity towards, I just, I donated so much money and I, and I helped that, that dimes or pennies for the March of Life or whatever amount of money they asked for at this point with inflation. <laughs> but the criminal never once says any of that. What the criminal is saying, he's saying, remember me. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. This is divine grace. This is the reality that this criminal understood that Jesus was sinless. He understood that Jesus was dying on behalf of others. He, he, all he had in, in his court was the reality of he understood who the Messiah now was. Which is all any of us actually Need to be able to be saved. See, all those other things I listed aren't bad things. Being kind to people, having polite manners, not running around dropping the F-bomb on a Sunday morning is probably a good thing. Loving others. We're commanded to love others, but first we're commanded to love God and then love others. See, what, what we're being reminded of is, and I challenge all of you, to listen to Alistair Begg's sermon on the criminal of the cross. Because he makes it very clear. He, he uses the analogy of, of, of the criminal getting to the gates and, and the, the check-in angel is like, well, you know, how, how, how'd you get here? Well, I, I don't know. And this is my paraphrase of his paraphrase, so. But pretty, he's just like, well, do you, did you do church membership? No. Okay, so then how are you here? Well, d- did you get baptized? Well, no. Well, have you done the Lord's supper? No. Angel goes in. His manager brings him in. Manager says, "How? How are you here?" And the criminal's response is finally because the guy on the middle cross said I could. And even in my own paraphrase, it makes me just feel the depth of that divine grace. He's ultimately, any of us who are truly his here tonight, it is simply because Christ said so. Anything you do after that is the fruit of the walk you now experience with him until you either die or he comes back. I love the narrative of the criminals, and I actually wasn't even going to almost include it, and I had to, because it sets the stage for what takes place with his actual Death, burial, and resurrection. And so now we go into the death of Jesus, starting in verse 44. It says, It was now about noon, and the darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. This wasn't a lunar eclipse, as some people try to play it off. This wasn't just some freak accident. This is actually a beautiful picture that was given to us all the way back in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, as the days before the first ever Passover meal were done, the first ever actual action of Passover took place, God held the earth dark for three days. And in, those, in the darkness of those three days, he told the Israelites, go and get the lamb for sacrifice. Go and prepare your doorsteps. Paint the blood above the doors, because on that third night, the angel of death will come. And it will reap its price for disobedience and sin. And so what we now see here is the spotless lamb, the true lamb, John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God. We now see Him in total darkness for three hours as He bore the complete and full price of sin on that cross. That last sacrificial lamb that we read about in Hebrews, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect blood spilt was now being prepared as Israel took three days to prepare in Egypt Jesus took three hours to prepare for the grave. Verse 45, we learn from Scripture that the veil, the veil is what separated man from the Holy of Holies. It was that one place that they went once a year to give that atonement for sin. And the priests actually had to go in with rope tied around their ankles so in case they screwed up and died, their bodies could be dragged out with anyone else dying how sacred this place was and at the death of Christ we see that it is torn from top to bottom these things were like four or five inches thick it wasn't just like a flimsy little like ah come walk through my beaded door it wasn't like the Wizard of Oz where the guy just kind of had a little curtain that he hid behind it was this massive beastly veil That no one could just make up and tear themselves. It was a divine act. And what this act now showed was that the act of bridging the gap between God and man has now fully happened. What they once had faith in once a year to say, "This this is what God has promised us. There's going to be a redeemer one day that's going to do this. That redeemer has now come and did it. He now bore the full price of sin. He now bridged the gap between God and man for whoever confesses with their mouth that he is Lord and believes in his heart that he was raised from the dead three days later shall be saved. He now bridges that gap. In verse 47, Luke 23, it says, when the centurion saw what happened, so one of the Roman guards who was in charge of watching over those being crucified, when he saw what happened, he began to glorify God. God saying, this man was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chest. But all who knew him, including the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. It is crazy to me to think that somehow we still have this weird notion of ethnic reward or ethnic ties or different gospels or all these things who 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 glorified God at the sight of Christ dying on the cross a gentile a roman soldier when everyone else was running and fleeing bewildered by what just took place it was a gentile who looked at the cross that held Christ and said for he is righteous He glorified God because of it. The power of the gospel is all-inclusive. Christ's message has always been for everyone. It will always and forever be by grace through faith. verse 50, There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. I love that in this gospel account they give some backstory to Joseph. So many, because we see throughout Scripture, some of the epistles are even written to Jews that were struggling still with tradition. Tradition. People were still trying to put works. And you have to work to earn grace. You have to work to earn salvation. You have to work to keep good stance with God. And what we see here is Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council and court, when he took Jesus down from the cross and walked with him into the tomb, took a stance. We think it's just a simple act, but what he was doing is he was saying, I no longer identify with any of my worldly religions or thoughts or rituals. I stand with a person. I stand with the one whom I've looked forward to to the kingdom of God because of. It was religious ostracy to take him down and place him into a tomb and treat him with respect. And he denied all of his stance and walked Jesus with fine linen into the tomb. Verse 54, It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. They then returned and prepared spice and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And there's so much in this story that I feel like a lot of us, we would read over this and we'd just keep going, right? Like, now he's in the tomb. We want to get to the part where he gets out. But I love that all the Gospels take such time. The Holy Spirit gave them such wisdom to discern and say, you know what, we need to put in there that they actually cared about the preparation of Jesus' body. Why is that so important, Mitch? Because that shows us that he, there's no way to get around the fact that he physically, literally died. He wasn't still breathing, and in the darkness of night, Joseph came up and was like, oh, it's okay, I still feel the pulse, let's pull him down. We'll say he died. Or there was never a body there, because that wasn't even really him on the cross. No, we put detail in there of the most beautiful, ceremonial, cre- not cremation, but burial service. They brought the wrappings, they brought the spices The women even observed how they laid Jesus in the tomb because of custom for them. They wanted to make sure he was even laid correctly. If there wasn't an actual body there, and if that wasn't an actual part of the point of the gospel, then who cares how he was buried? Let's just get to the good part. But for the gospel to be the gospel, this part has to make sense. And now we get to resurrection morning in chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, Sunday for them, Monday for us. We all like to begin our weeks on Monday, I guess. But for them, it's Sunday. That's what we need to think about, Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. So on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. Still see that detail of the fact that it's now days later. And they're still like, we need to make sure he's buried right. We need to bring the spices. But then in verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. I love just the reality again of that. Of that, they were confused. They had been following Jesus in his public ministry for a while, hearing everything he was saying, and now that it took place, they're like, "Oh well, whoopsie daisies. Guess we'll bury him." Again, <laughs> we saw, Lazarus, he raised him out of the grave, but you know. His body's now in there, so I guess no one else can do it, so I guess we'll we'll tidy him up and mummify him. They they were, they loved them and they respected them and, and and they they had good intentions, but they were missing the point. And I, I love what the angels say in the or the men in dazzling clothes. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and risen on the third day. And they remembered his words. Jesus is alive. That's the resurrection story. That is the capstone to everything you and I have placed our faith in. Is the fact that we have a Savior who is risen and alive. And this part I love the most. A little bit earlier I was sharing a devotional thought and I was reading out of Jeremiah. And he gives a stark warning from the Lord saying, Do not go after the ways of the nations... And do not not be terrified by supposed acts of the heavens. Pretty much stop trying to go with culture and stop being mystified by weird mysticism, spiritual ritualism. Stop looking for that next event and emotional experience. It says, they heard and they remembered his words. The angels pointed them back to Scripture. You knew the Scripture. How did you not understand what just happened? They were so caught up in just the moment and in the emotions that all the truth that they had been being just firehosed, funneled to the face with for about three years, just left. And in the beautiful reality of an empty tomb and the Lord's messenger saying, do you not remember what he spoke about himself and what he came to do? And it was in that moment they realized he's alive. I think this is my warning as we enter into the end of this message though of the reality that No amount of experience will outweigh the reality of God's holy word and truth. These same women experienced the same thing the criminal did on the cross, and yet that criminal got it faster than they did. But he understood and and he and he there's nothing left. I'm gonna die. I might as well make sure I understand the truth and what side I'm on. They said, we've lost a loved one. We are going to mourn and give him the best that we could because we loved him. But they never understood him until they were reminded of the words. And I, I held off, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it now because I had to. I got us a flannel graph. These yeah. it's Sunday school stories. But I want to use the flannel graph to depict the way people see the crucifixion. And don't mind the backdrop because unfortunately we didn't have a hill. So just think the Roman jail cell as a hill. But I have the right graph people. But this is the sad reality of the different ways that we like to see Jesus. And I'm so excited to use this. Also threw away the easel, so I have to use a music stand. But here's the first way that we love to view Jesus when we don't understand how forgiveness works. When we live in a works-based reality, this is how we view Jesus. This is where we still think Jesus is. This is why when people say, oh, well, they have that cute little cross in their house and Jesus is on it, it's they're good Christian people. Some of them, I'll give them just ignorance. They probably don't understand. But what this symbolizes is the reality that they don't think that his work on the cross was enough. That there's something they still have to do. But it took. The picture and the description and the narrative of this guy who hung there and said, Jesus, remember me today. Remember me. Not any of my good works, not any of my good actions, not how I loved people, not if I did membership and baptism. Not if I not if I knew what justification, sanctification, glorification was. He says, I understand who you are and why you're hanging on that cross, so please remember me remember me that's why we can never keep jesus on the cross because if we keep him on the cross every time you mess up and then try to work to earn god's favor you're re-crucifying him every time you're saying your work was not complete now envision this to be a tomb looks a little bit more like a tomb right they set a stone There's another view that some people like to hold that Jesus is still this. That's him dead. That's the closest flannel graph picture I can get to him dead. This was before the women brought the fine linen, right? They were still getting the spices and everything. But this is the reality of, of what people do. We hear the message. We understand that Jesus did this. But then we leave him in the grave and treat him as a really good moral example. He lived the best life. He did the example of what we could do also. So if you just follow Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, you're golden. This is the reality of how you view Jesus when you treat him as a good moral teacher, when you treat his word as just a moral guideline. This is how you view Jesus when you sit there and you go, well, I've done more good than bad. I never cursed. I've only smoked one cigarette. I never jaywalk. I'm always at church 30 minutes early and I'm there every time the doors are open. Got my Starbucks punch card punched. The last one's entry to heaven. That's what we do if we leave Jesus in the tomb. And I think a lot of us might not do it on purpose. I think a lot of us might just not be taught exactly how to view it. But there's this last picture, and imagine this is not anything. But, but we fail to see Jesus so often, so often in our lives, we fail to see Jesus this way. We fail to see him high and lifted up, ascended and risen from the grave, We fail to see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. That is what we fail to do so often. When we understand Jesus like this, we understand the gospel, we understand the reality of the cross, the grave. We understand that that when Jesus said, truly I say today, you will be with me in paradise, that criminal died on the cross and woke up in the presence of the Lord. And that's why I love the song that says the scars in heaven because the only scars that are in heaven are on the hands of Jesus. They are no longer on you and I. They are no longer in the life that we live. I want to reread now the quote that I read to you in the beginning. Now that we've heard the story of the criminal and Jesus, John Calvin says, what is promised to the robber does not alleviate his present suffering nor make any abatement of his bodily punishment. This reminds us that we ought not to judge the grace of God by the perception of our flesh. We all can attest to the fact that life sucks. Life is going to be hard. Even for the ones that have been walking with the Lord for years now. Life is hard. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. We do not base the grace of God on anything that we get, earn, or are given. But we live in His grace because He is living right there. He is high And lift it up, sitting at the right hand of the Father, actively interceding for each and every one of you that is his tonight. That's where I want to bring us into our key doctrine, our last doctrine of the Sunday school stories. And I thought it would be a great one to end with in our series. The doctrine of freedom. Always for anyone who's new, this is the Mitch definition. So if the wording's funny, you're welcome. This is a two-part sense in which Christ made us born again and has liberated us, uh, and has liberated the person in light of his sinfulness. So we've been now born again, right? He's given us a new heart. We are we are made new creations. The old has passed away. So that two part. What is that two part? The first part is we are now set free by having peace with God. And the second is we are set free to experience peace from God daily. So often we all seek Jesus to achieve some type of peace in life, in our journeys, and we fail to see that that can only happen when we first have peace with God. This is why it's so important to remember that Jesus is Lord and Savior, saving us to peace with God and then being our Lord to dispense peace towards us daily. See, so many of us are so stuck at why isn't God giving me peace about this? Why isn't God giving me peace in this moment? Why isn't God doing this? And what we fail to look and see is the fact that you're not even striving or looking or dwelling in the peace that you have with God. You want peace from him so bad that you forget to actually experience the peace that he has given to you. We all love the fact that we don't have to go to hell anymore when we're saved, right? Turn or burn. We fail to understand that our whole relationship with him being born again starts with the fact that, yeah, you're, you're, you're saved from hell, but you're brought into peace with God. Without Christ, you're not at peace with God, which is way scarier than having peace in this life. But because when we have peace with God, you now can have peace from God as your heavenly Father. So that's that final doctrine for our series, that doctrine of freedom, because I think that's what we need to hear tonight. Because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, you now can have peace with God as a sinner, then now saved by grace. And then eventually, once you understand that, you will start to experience peace from God into your life, right? Pastor Jeff says it all the time. You, he's most likely not going to save you from the fire, but man, does he promise to bring you through it. He may not save you from that horrible household, but man, he's going to bring you through it. He might not explain what that darkness and that heaviness is in your life right now, but boy, does he promise to bring you through it. That is the beauty of the peace with and from God through Jesus so here are my three points with you guys as we dive into questions here in a minute first point is not the daily grind not chasing glamour not striving for goodness but by grace through faith alone are you saved and I like I, I, I want to share this just really quick with you for anyone who's in this room that might not have ever heard this but it's my revised Romans road it's, it's a little shorter but Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You all, I, are sinners. You're not good. You might be good by the world's standards, but you're not good. None of us are good. You're, you, if you don't have Christ, you are in direct disobedience to God and on the way to eternal separation. That is the reality of it. And that's what Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of eternal life from God is through Christ Jesus. So as a sinner without Christ, you are going to go to hell one day. You might be living in heaven now, but you're going to go to hell one day. But there's a free gift. And it's that gift we just talked about. It's that gift that we understand that Jesus took the cross for a very specific reason. It's a gift that's been pointed to from the whole Old Testament and now fulfilled here in the Gospels through Jesus. It's that gift that Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if you believe in your heart that he, uh, God rails him from the dead in three days and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. If you surrender your life to Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, in faith, that's all it is. Not works, Not actions. Not anything else, but in faith saying that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. It is through Christ Jesus alone. You will be saved. Point number two. Even if the earthly temporal suffering continues, if you are his, you will have an eternal peace. It might not ever once feel like heaven on earth for you but eternal heaven with Christ is way better. And that is a hope and a peace that we can look for. That gives us peace here and now. And number three, Jesus is real. Uh, plain and simple, Jesus is real. Fully God, fully man. Judgment is real. You will either go to heaven or hell one day. There is real judgment. Judgment. And that was the last point of it. And eternity in heaven or hell is real. Jump my own gun. But more importantly, Jesus' power to forgive anyone is real. So rest in that. So many of us don't understand the reality of forgiveness. Mainly forgiving yourselves. There are so many of you in this room tonight. I'm guilty of it. Even the smallest mistake, I will take weeks to forgive myself. I serve, and I attend church, and I do good. I'm a hypocrite. I messed up. How dare I? I can't do these anymore. You become gloomy and downtrodden. You exile yourself from everybody, and and now you've, you've done everything Satan just wanted you to do the whole time. When in reality, I know it's goofy, but you could have been this guy. He, 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 there was no way to forgive himself. There was literally nothing he could do to forgive himself, and yet he understood it wasn't him. It was the guy on the middle cross. It was Christ Jesus who said, Today, when this temporal suffering's over, you're going to be right here with me. So life is going to look a lot like this. Life is going to look a lot like this. A complete mess and disaster, and you're going to feel like this. But all joking aside, that is minuscule compared to the peace, the joy, the love, and happiness That it brings knowing you now, the moment you are his, the moment you are born again, the moment you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, eternity started then. Eternal peace started then. Eternal life started then. And if that's for you tonight that's been struggling with that reality, feeling that conviction of making that life choice, if you surrender your life to him tonight, that peace starts now. That confidence in Jesus Christ being your Lord and Savior starts now. So even if you get tossed into the furnace or the lion's den or the Red Sea, enslaved into Egypt, exiled into Babylon, hung on a cross, you will have peace knowing who you serve, who holds your soul, and that is Christ. So let me pray, and then we will go into our discussion time, and like I always say, find a table with new people, sit with new perspectives, um, and really soak in the questions, and I pray that you really take the time to, to talk with each other. That's what this whole night truly is about. This is, this is just what part of it. What you guys do now is the main meat of it. So let me pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Lord, I know even for myself, I was thinking about it yesterday, just the journey we've taken since August to get to this point. And God, now as we enter into the Christmas season, as we reflect and remember the birth of your son, the one who ultimately grew up and and provided life for us, God, I pray we reminisce on that tonight. I pray that we dive through these questions and we truly seek to encourage and convict each other and find encouragement and conviction for ourselves based on your word and your word alone. God, it was your word, it was your prophecy, it was your scripture that reminded the women of the reality of who Jesus truly was, that he has risen. God, we don't serve a savior still on the cross. We don't serve a savior who's decayed in a tomb. We follow the guidepost of the cross and the guidepost of the grave to then look up at the heavens and see Jesus sitting at your right hand, God. Remind me of that tonight. Remind all of us of that tonight, that he is there just dispensing grace, mercy, forgiveness, and life. I pray we all leave here changed and convicted. tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Be with this time. Soften our hearts and our ears to, towards each other and towards your word. We pray this all in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.